if you have a Bible, maybe you could turn with me to Nehemiah and chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. While you're finding it, have you ever noticed in a movie how there are these kind of happy music interludes? You know what I'm talking about? It's the moment when music begins to play and there's not a whole lot of dialogue between the main characters, but you begin to watch them start to make positive forward progress. It's the moment where things are suddenly going right. The couple's falling in love, or the project is advancing in some way, or the sports team is learning to work together. It's the happy music moment. Now, we've been looking at the story of Nehemiah over the last few weeks, and if Nehemiah was to be turned into a movie, I'm convinced that chapter 3 would be the happy music moment in the film. Because it's this moment where Nehemiah has come back to Jerusalem. He's come to inspire the people and lead them in rebuilding the walls. And so he gathers them all together. And it's this dramatic moment where he says, come, let us rebuild the walls. And everyone just rises up in response to this. And they believe they can do it. And in unison, they cry out, let us start rebuilding. And I think it's at that moment that the music would begin to build. I can kind of imagine it all being in slow motion as they pick up the bricks and start to build the wall. And everyone's pumping, everyone's excited, everyone's exhilarated. This is the high point of the story so far. They believe they can do this and they're lining up side by side, each doing their bit to build the walls and it's kind of like, I believe I can fly. I mean, it's just awesome. It's the happy music moment of the book. But there's another thing that I've noticed in films. You ever notice that it's always straight after the happy music moment that something goes really wrong? And that's what kind of builds the tension that makes you want to keep on watching. But it also reflects something about real life. It reflects something in particular about the Christian life. The Bible describes how we have an enemy, the devil, who is furious when he sees the work of God advancing. He's very happy to see it in disarray. He's overjoyed when it's lacking in faith and purpose. But whenever he sees God's people beginning to gain fresh impetus, it strikes fear and anger and fury into the enemy camp. And so he lashes out and he attacks God's work. And that is exactly what happens to Nehemiah. Straight after this exhilarating moment where everyone is working together and the project is advancing, straight after this, we jump into chapter 4 and the people of God are hit with a whole load of opposition and trouble. And what we're going to see as we work through this passage are some pretty amazing parallels with our context You see, the tactics used to undermine Nehemiah are very similar to those used against us today. So what I want to do is just highlight some of those different lines of attack that Nehemiah faced, and then we're going to take a step back and see what we can learn from how he overcame them all. Let's begin with the attack. The first weapon we come across in this passage is mockery. Let's start reading from verse 1, Nehemiah 4. Verse 1, when Sambalat 
heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? I mean, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burnt as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was right there at his side, he said, what they're building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. You see what's happening here? Sambalat and Tobiah, they're mocking Nehemiah and the work of God. Now, taken at face value, mockery can very often seem merely like an expression of indifference. People don't really care about what you're doing, and so they decide to have a bit of a laugh at your expense. But these verses reveal to us what so very often actually lies behind it all. Nehemiah's opponents weren't indifferent at all. They were angry at what was going on, and they were using mockery to deliberately undermine it all. You see, the devil is very cunning. He knows how we're wired. We want to be honoured. We want to be respected. We want people to think well of us. We want to be accepted. We desperately want to be liked. We want to be popular with others. And so, even a small amount of mockery is often all it takes to stop us in our tracks, to keep quiet about our face, to keep a low profile, to compromise like everyone else around us, to be casual and never passionate. But if you stop and think about it, experiencing sarcasm and scorn is surely part of what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus, who, if you remember himself, endured the most brutal mockery for us. Now, Nehemiah, he gave the best possible answer to those who were mocking him. He just got on with the job. He didn't retaliate. He didn't try and defend himself. He didn't try and vindicate himself. He simply built the wall. Verse 6 tells us that the people worked with all their heart, and the wall soon reached half its height. And I think that's what we're to do. When people mock you, your best response is simply to keep building. Don't become easily offended. Don't try justifying yourself. Just let what you're building in your life speak for itself. Now, because mockery didn't stop Nehemiah, his opponents changed tack. They resorted to another approach. They'd confidently predicted that the work was uh, doomed to fail. I mean, if even a fox were to walk on the walls, it would just crumble down. But the whole project was actually now taking off. And so they turned to their next weapon, namely intimidation. Verse 7, But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Just to elaborate, Sambalat was in the north, the Arabs are in the south, Tobiah and the Ammonites are in the east, the people of Ashdod are in the west. 
In other words, it's gone from just a couple of guys stirring up a bit of trouble and having a bit of a laugh to a coalition. They've surrounded the city, north, south, east, and west, and they're devising a plan to attack God's people. It's like they won't be satisfied, they won't be content, they won't be happy until they've completely snuffed out the work of God. I can guarantee you, if you are really serious about following Jesus, you will eventually come across people who will threaten you in some way. Fortunately for us here in the UK, is not normally a violent threat. In other parts of the world, it is. New Frontiers, the family of churches that we're a part of, saw its first martyr last year, a leader of a church in another country, shot dead for his faith. There are the very many sensitive parts of the world that, as a family of churches we're currently working into, there will be more martyrs. We don't face death threats right now. But the threats come in different guises. might be the threat of the loss of a friendship. might be our career advancement that's threatened in some way. A whole lot of people in this church who have met with hostility just because they're a follower of Christ. They haven't been obnoxious, they haven't been overbearing, haven't been inappropriate in any way, but because they're a Christian, they've been treated harshly and unjustly. There are threats to us individually. There are also threats to us as a church. Might be from the media. Might be through social media sites. Might be through changes in government policy. Might be from people who seek to infiltrate the church purely to do us harm. It comes in all kinds of different guises, but whatever form it takes, if we're serious about building something for the glory of God here in this city, there will always be people who are intent on intimidating us, into stopping the work. That is the challenge that Nehemiah faced. But once again, he saw right through the enemy's tactics and he refused to back down. I love verse 9. Nehemiah says, but we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. As we saw last week, prayer and planning are often both necessary. So Nehemiah responds by not only praying, it's great to pray, we must pray, but he also puts in place a plan to defend God's people from harm. And as we look to get on with the work that God has called us to as a church, I suggest we must do the same. We need to keep on praying and we need to put things in place to protect people. That's why we run CRB checks in all our kids' work. That's why we have safeguarding policies. That's why, where necessary, we work with the authorities. One of the roles of leaders in the church is to act like shepherds, protecting the flock. We don't go looking for fights. We're not looking for trouble. But wherever there are wolves that come along looking to do harm, rest assured we will do everything we can to protect people. Although Nehemiah sought God's help, although he made wise plans for the protection of people, understandably the intimidation started to get to some of the workers. And whereas the first two lines of attack came from outside, the third was internal. 
It was something that, I guess, affects all of us from time to time. Discouragement set in. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. And the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Listen, the enemy wants you to be overwhelmed by the scale of the task in front of you. He wants you to be aware of your weakness. He wants you to be focused in on yourself. He wants you to take your eyes off God and he wants you to forget God's power. He wants you to be focused on all of your inadequacies, everything that you can't do. He wants you to look at the work and feel weak and powerless. He wants you to grow so discouraged that you just throw in the towel and walk away. Now you might have been experiencing this in a whole range of different forms. You might be feeling tired or stressed or depressed. Let me tell you something. If there is any part of your life where the good work that God has called you to feels like it's just not worth it anymore. feels like it's not making any difference. You feel like you want to give up. That is the devil behind it. He's the one who wants to tempt you to feel feeble and hopeless. So I want to urge you, do not give in to those lies. Your labor is not in vain. God's power is sufficient for you. God is still sovereign. However strong the mockery, however intimidating the threat, He can protect you. I don't know. Maybe you're trying to raise your kids day in, day out. And it's like nothing you do seems to make any difference. Or maybe at work, others seem to get all the credit. You never get any of the credit. Or it's just a hard slog. You, you can't see a way through. You, you can't see the point anymore. Maybe you're struggling to fight a particular area of temptation. All the while, the people around you They're not trying to fight temptation, they're embracing it. They're living pretty godless lives and yet they seem a whole lot happier than you do. And maybe inwardly you're jealous of what they've got, beginning to wonder where God is. Maybe as you seek to love and cherish your husband or wife, it feels like it's making no difference. Do you know what the enemy wants to say to you? Why do you even bother? Your marriage is broken. It's not worth trying to fix it. You can't keep going on like this any longer. Walk away. These are lies of the enemy. And again, I want to plead with you. Keep laboring in God's good work in your life. We face discouragement on so many different fronts. 
but it doesn't have to defeat us. It's not inevitable that we will be overwhelmed by it. The example of Nehemiah gives us hope. It is possible to overcome every attack that's hurled at us. So let's look at how he did it. What was Nehemiah's secret? Four things I quickly want to highlight. Four ways that he defended himself and God's work. Four ways that he overcame the attack. First one's this. You need to consider the Lord. Consider the Lord. Faced with potentially life-threatening intimidation and debilitating discouragement, Nehemiah gathers the people together and seeks to reassure them. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your hopes. Sin already that when we're facing opposition, very often the temptation is to make the focus ourselves. How are we doing? Are we strong enough? Do we have what it takes? Nehemiah is saying, don't start there. Don't do that. Consider the Lord. The other temptation is to make the focus, not ourselves, but the enemy to be obsessed with what he's doing, to have his words ringing in our ears, to believe the lies that we're failures or we're doomed to failure and it's better just to give up. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord and let his words ring in your ears. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will fight for us. He has already overcome and we are his. We are with him. We face it with him. He loves us. He accepts us. He is faithful. He is all-powerful. It's like Nehemiah saying, I don't want your focus to be on the opposition or on the problem or on the struggle, the situation that just seems huge. And I don't want you to begin by looking at your personal ability to persevere. I want you to start by considering God. And remember how great and how awesome He is. There is no one and there is no thing that is not under the authority of our God. He's sovereign. He rules. He reigns. He is above all things. He rules over all nations and all kings, all kingdoms, all races, all governments. He rules over all genders and all religions and all political affiliations. He rules over all times and places and peoples. You know, I really can't help thinking that a lot of us somewhere along the line have somehow lost this sense of wonder and awe before God. I want to appeal to you. Don't reduce him in size. Don't be irreverent or flippant or blasé about him. Don't lose sight of the fact that he is great and awesome. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. He's a holy God. And he's to be revered. Consider who he is. 
and then fight. I tell you, the more time you spend acknowledging and embracing and experiencing who God really is, the more confidence you'll have that with his help, you really can handle whatever it is you're facing. If you'll just put all of your problems, all of your issues, I don't know, maybe your health, your financial struggles, your relational struggles, if you'll put all of that in the context of this great and awesome God then it has the potential to change your entire perspective. Suddenly you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to give up. You can keep going. I believe this is God's word to some of you today. Whatever the problems are, don't be afraid of them. Consider the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and then fight. It's the first way that Nehemiah overcame. Second thing that he relied on was comradeship. And understand the people with Nehemiah being frightened, petrified at the prospect of fighting. In no way am I looking to downplay or trivialize the reality of the threat facing them. Until the walls, until the gates were set in place, they were sitting targets. Because of the length of the wall they were trying to repair, some of the workers were particularly isolated. They could very easily have been picked off one by one. And so Nehemiah instructed them to sound the trumpet in the event of an attack. Verse 20, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. You know, this sense of comradeship, this sense of community really should characterize our church life. We really shouldn't have to go through pressures alone anymore. Of course, we need to consider God. We we need to draw strength from Him, but we also need to blow the trumpet so that people can race, people can rush to help us. God's design is for the church to be a community. It's a place where we don't need to face things alone or by ourselves. It's one of the reasons why we've really emphasized over the last month or so, we want everyone to be connected into a life group. Because as the church grows larger, it can be very easy to get lost in the crowds. But in a smaller group, it's a lot easier to get to know people and receive help when we're in trouble. Life groups are really important. Of course, the flip side of this is we do need to actually ask for help. We need to be open with people, not self-sufficient and independent, not too proud to admit that we're struggling. God wants us to be a whole lot more honest than that. When you're under pressure, I want to appeal to you to blow the trumpet, cry out for help. Because if you don't shout, no one else will necessarily know about it. If we're going to overcome opposition, we really do need to build a greater sense of comradeship and community into our relationships. Third thing we see here is also the importance of commitment. Take a look down to verse 21. Nehemiah says, So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. 
at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. That is phenomenal commitment. And the reason why I think they were so committed was they were convinced it was a great project and God was in it. And I'd suggest if we are going to overcome opposition in our lives, we also need that same level of conviction. Because without it, at the first sign of trouble, we'll give up. We'll just walk away. And so I want to call you to consider your commitment right now. I'm not talking about commitment to a good idea or to a cunning strategy. I'm not talking about commitment to me or even primarily to Church Central. I want to ask you to commit to what Jesus is prioritizing right now. If you remember, during his life, Jesus promised his small band of disciples, I will build my church. In fact, Jesus himself personally was so committed to this vision that Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that Jesus literally laid down his life, gave up his life for the church. And then following his resurrection, Jesus commanded the church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And he promises Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then, just prior to his ascension back into heaven, Jesus promised the first church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was a seemingly outrageous promise to make to a motley bunch of a mere 120 people. But then, when that power came at Pentecost, Acts 3 records how those who accepted the message were baptized, and get this, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You know, these first church members were amazed that Jesus would give up his life for them. They were pretty overwhelmed by the miraculous power of God. They'd seen it with their own eyes. And so they were compelled to tell others the good news. And two millennia later, the church now is this phenomenal global thing encompassing a few billion people. Jesus has promised that at the end of time he will return for a glorious church and the use of the word glorious is certainly appropriate when you think of the impact of the church down through history. It really is no exaggeration to say that the church is the hope for the whole world. Yet here in this city, the common perception of the church is vastly different. God has said that the church will be the joy of the whole earth. And yet here in Birmingham, the church is pretty much a laughingstock. It's mocked. A whole load of opponents dead set on undermining the work of the church 
here in this city. And we could very easily, faced up with this, be intimidated into hiding away and keeping silent. Faced with the scale of the need around us, it would be understandable if we felt pretty discouraged right now. And yet Jesus has spoken. It's pretty clear what his agenda is for this city. It's building and equipping the church to go out into every street, into every estate, into every university campus, into every community with the good news of what Jesus has done. It's going out to the poor and the broken and the oppressed. It's bringing healing to the sick and justice to those who aren't receiving justice and hope to the hopeless. It's seeing this whole city saved, one life at a time. Are you willing to commit yourself to getting the job done? Because it's going to take a whole lot of commitment. This isn't a mission that will be achieved half-heartedly. Are you willing to commit? Now, I don't want you hearing all of this as some kind of rebuke. It's really not. I'm absolutely thrilled by the commitment of so many people in this church to Christ and his church. I just want you to keep your focus on what it is we're committing to. It's not our glory. It's not our own personal agenda. It's not doing good works to appease our conscience. It's something far bigger and altogether more significant. It's the glory of Jesus and fulfilling the great commission that he's given to us. Personally, I think that's something that's worth fighting for. That's something to commit to. And right now, God's wanting to assure you that this is certainly something that he is committed to. And he's calling you right now to join him in bringing it about, come what may. We need to be committed And then fourthly, we also need to cry out to God. As you read through the story of Nehemiah, you can't fail to see the many verses where he cries out to God. From beginning to end, he just keeps on praying. Whether it's hearing news of the state of the city in chapter 1, or needing wisdom and guidance in chapter 2 in how to enlist the king's help, or in the face of opposition here in chapter 4, he prays. So when Sambalad and Tobiah mock the work, verse 4 records how he prayed, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And then, when all the surrounding nations plotted to attack Jerusalem, verse 9, we've looked at it already, it says, But we prayed to our God. And we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. It's like Nehemiah is constantly crying out to God. That's how he overcame. And I really don't think we will see all that God has for us without developing a similar lifestyle of constant prayer. If you remember, it's pretty much how Jesus lived when he was here on this earth. And the early disciples, they they learned the lesson from him and devoted themselves to prayer. Read the book of Acts. Prayer undergirded all their activity. And you don't get the sense it was ever a dull routine for them. No, it was absolutely vital to the building of the church and the advance of the gospel. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, they prayed and fire fell. 
few days later they prayed, the whole building they were in was shaken and they were all filled afresh with the Holy Spirit and with boldness. News of Peter's imprisonment inspired them not to storm the prison but to storm the heavens in earnest intercession which led to his miraculous release. If we're to overcome opposition in our own life and see the constant advance of God's good work, I am very convinced that we need to cry out to God a whole lot more than we do right now. We must cry out to God. So in conclusion, whatever opposition we're facing, if it feels very small, or very big in comparison with what others are facing, whatever it looks like, whatever context it's taking place in, we can learn from Nehemiah. He refused to take his eye off God, and he refused to take his eye off the work that God had called him to. I want to appeal to you. Don't let the opposition that you are facing stop the work of God in your life. Instead, consider the Lord. See the importance of comradeship, standing together. Commit to the work and cry out to God. God, would you fight for us? God, would you be our defender? God, would you give us the strength we need to keep on building? And may we not stop the good work that he's called us to. We're weak, yet God's the one who is great and awesome. That's the God who we serve. So let's not stop the work. Let's press through. Let's see God's great glory revealed here in this city.